Since everyone has a gender journey, Gender Journeys is a podcast for everyone. That being said, we occasionally touch on mature themes and use strong language, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Gender Journeys, the podcast where we talk about just what the heck gender actually is in context. As always, I am one of your hosts, Josie, and I'm joined by your other host, my lovely partner, Elle. Hey, y'all. All right, so what are we talking about on the podcast this week? All right, so we are talking about this kind of loose subject. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be a discussion-heavy episode this week, y'all. This is going to be less us informing you of things and more just what's been on our in our conversations recently. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the idea that by pressuring trans people, especially trans youth, into being so hyper-duper-duper-duper duper, duper sure that they want X, Y, and Z procedures, we actually take away their ability to think about whether or not they actually want those mm-hmm. by creating this kind of scarcity mindset. We touched on that last week, and we almost dove into this conversation, but we decided that it was worthy of its whole own episode. Right. So if if you haven't listened to our podcast last week, I would recommend it. Because, you know, we we have a pretty good podcast here. (laughs) Yeah, actually, if you haven't listened to the whole thing, I would just go back and listen. (laughs) No, that's not true. (laughs) But last week, we talked about the kind of uh, balance between gender-affirming care and body modifications, and one of the topics that we touched on specifically was about how I have both tattoos and HRT and how because of the very privileged uh, spot I was in at the time, it was about as easy... Like geographic spot, like, yes. Geographic and also financial. That's true. It was about as easy for me to get my tattoos as it was for me to get my HRT. Mm -hmm. I was able to access HRT with just about as much forethought and oversight as getting my tattoos. Which in our household is how it should be, yes. in our opinions. Because of morphological autonomy, which again, you know, we dive into that more in previous It's episodes. a theme. <laughs> it's a theme here. So yeah, something that I have kind of felt myself with top surgery and have felt, or I've kind of just picked up on being in queer communities, and especially being in queer communities online in spaces like Reddit and Discord with particularly younger people, in order to access gender-affirming care, be that hormone blockers, be that testosterone, estrogen, or top surgery. Those are the ones that I mainly see this for. Mm -hmm. In order to access it, there's this energy, this expectation, this, in some places, legal requirement that you wake up every day and you look at your body and you're like, this is a prison. I hate this. I'm going to kill myself. I can't look in a mirror. I can't look down when I shower. I shower in the dark. I hate this. I've hated it since the day. I remember when I started puberty because I hated it and like, my parents have always known I'm trans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I have never had any single doubt that I want HRT or top surgery or hormone blockers. And I am the picture of confidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know I want this. Put me under. Put me under the knife right now. Take them away like I want this. Right, right. And you know, again, that's some people's experience. That, and that really is, is so real. And that is so valid. And we're not talking about those people. Those yeah. people, yeah. that's great. <laughs> I mean, it's probably not great. It's probably not great. But 
It's more straightforward, at the very least. It's straightforward, and it's visible. It's very, like... And it's understandable. It's understandable. To cis people. You can very empathetically look at somebody and... Who can't get out of bed. Who can't get out of bed and be like, wow, you're clearly in pain. You can look at somebody who has, like, that extreme internal gender identity Mm -hmm. as somebody who is cis and possibly has an extreme internal gender identity, or at least think you do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can relate to that. You can be like, oh, okay, like, yeah, like... If I had been born, you can think as a cis person, if I had been born in the wrong quote unquote body, I would probably also want to claw my way out of it. And like, right. Which is, I think, where we've gotten so much of this wrong body narrative. Again, not because some trans people don't experience that. Some trans people do. But the cis people who rule the world, and specifically the cis people who rule the media world, get that story a lot better. And they produce it a lot more. And then we see it in media. We see it in news, etc. Mm-hmm. But like, yo, where does that leave people... like myself Mm -hmm. who are either non-binary god forbid gender fluid (laughs) or just trans mask or trans femme or non-op non-op or maybe are trans binary person but didn't discover that until later in life and don't hate the rest of their life that they lived like the previous amount of their life that they lived as like, don't feel like they were repressed. Just feel like they hadn't grown into this yet, you know? Right. For me, that's a lot of my gender fluidity. I want to just acknowledge that for some people, it's not gender fluidity. It's just like kind of, you know, at some point in your life, you... You recognize that. Recognize or change or, you mm-hmm. know, something. Or you recognize that, like, the prescribed idea of what medical procedures you're supposed to undergo as whatever gender you are. From I mean, like, I think of this in terms of my non-opness. Mm-hmm. Like, when I first came out, there was this expected arc of my life where I would eventually get bottom surgery. And, like, I now identify as non-op because I don't want that. Yeah, and I also, I personally, from my perspective as a non-binary person, I read a book called <laughs> Non-Binary, very helpful, Memoirs of something, We'll put it in the... We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, it does not have a very helpful title, I'm not going to lie. But it is a book of short memoirs of older non-binary people. It's Mm -hmm. aimed at this idea that like, ooh, non-binary is a new fad. Like, no bitch. It's not new. (laughs) Non-binary people have always been here. So it has memoirs of non-binary people who are like currently in like maybe their 40s, 50s, 60s. Mm -hmm. And a lot of their experiences had a very similar theme, which was they were born as ex-gender. And they were like, wow, I don't like this whole gender thing. So they looked around and they're like, how do I deal with that? And then they were forced into a binary transition and then either got part of the way through that binary transition or maybe got all the way through that binary transition. And then were like, ah, shit, I don't like this thing either. And then at some point discovered a non-binary community or forged Mm -hmm. their own non-binary community. But first they went through an entire binary transition, which for some of them, like, you know, they accepted as part of their life and whatnot. But like, I can only imagine is somewhat traumatic. You're like, this isn't what I wanted anyway. And now I've spent so much money and time and like physical resources in terms of like healing my body Mm -hmm. on the shit that I don't even want. Like, I don't actually want a flat chest or I don't actually want titties. Right. I just don't want to be the gender I am. Right. And I think that that, the idea that people would do that, the people, the idea that people would regret these decisions mm-hmm. is used against the, the trans and gender expansive community a lot. Which is bullshit because we, like bodily autonomy, y'all let people do what they want. Right. I mean, morphological autonomy and bodily autonomy. All of it. Mm-hmm. But part of, I think what's specifically what we, what we want to talk about on this episode today is that like the fact that some people undergo those things and then regret them. I mean, 
sometimes that's just kind of how it is. Like, mm-hmm. that's not a failing on any one particular person's part, or right. even on society's part. Could be a gender-fluid identity that hasn't been recognized, just saying. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that there is a very real sort of, like, issue uh, where because it is considered so essential and because things are so heavily gated, Mm -hmm. the gender-affirming care, you're not actually given a lot of time to think about it. And if you do pause to think about it, a lot of the time that will be used against you. Right. So if you say... I mean, even in my experience, I've really tried to hold on to this idea that like I'm doing a top surgery consult because I want to learn more about it and I want to learn if it's right for me. And that is not an easy thing to hold on to because family and friends are emotional, to say the least. And so telling them that like I'm not even sure about it wouldn't go over well. They would be like, well, then you don't want it. Mm -hmm. Or at least that's my perception. I think it's a correct perception. But then also like... I'm on a wait list. (laughs) Like the amount of work it's taken me to just get to the point that I can have a consult. That consult is no longer informative. That consult is a part of a process. Like there's nobody in this process who has acted as though that consult is meant to be informative, even though a consult is generally, is this right for you? Right. No. Like I've already had to have therapists write me letters that say I've been in distress since I was a child. But like I've had to jump through a lot of hoops in order to access something that in theory should be, okay, is this something you want? I've had to think about it Mm -hmm. for, by the time I get it, I I thought about it for two months. I had to be actively working on doing this every day Mm -hmm. for two months. Right. And so I think that something that we've talked about previously, and and you mentioned it in our conversation, you've mentioned it around like family and friends being like, well, are you sure? Mm -hmm. Um, And we've also talked about just in terms of like how the medical community is so driven behind these like stupid letters you had to get that are like, part of the reason it was so hard for you to get them is because the people who are writing them knew that if they didn't write them exactly 100% perfectly and get them signed off by the exact right person, then they'd get rejected. Exactly. And And then my insurance wouldn't count it as enough. And I mean, in that, I genuinely had to have a conversation with my therapist that was like, do I think I have to say that I'm a man? (laughs) Like, do I think I need to have this letter written? And now I will say that my therapists were happy to write whatever the fuck I said, which is one of the many ways that the queer community has built to circumvent these nonsensical gates. Trans therapists will often just write you a letter, sometimes for a fee. It is a little bit predatory in that way, but they will just write you a letter that says whatever the insurance company needs to hear in order to cover your whatever it is that you need covered. This isn't even to speak of people who don't have access to those sorts of therapists who actually have to go into therapy and lie for multiple sessions. I've heard stories of people that their therapist requires six months of therapy with them in which they have to prove that they have a stable gender identity and dysphoria to go with that stable gender identity Mm -hmm. in order to access these things. What if that person is non-binary? What if they don't have, what if they're gender fluid and they don't have a stable gender identity? What if they don't have dysphoria? Then they have to go through therapy for six months. Six months. How many sessions is that? That is six times four. That is literally a full day. That is 24 sessions. That is a full day of this person's life that they have to lie. Right. And (laughs) And that's, that is detrimental. That is terrible. Right. Right. And I think that's so interesting too, because I remember when I was, you know, we we spoke earlier in the episode here about how I was in a very privileged position when I got my HRD. Mm-hmm. I was fully anticipating that that was the only way that it happened. Like I, I I hadn't done a lot of like research into like 
the good ways of getting HRT. I thought that I was Which is called informed consent. Informed consent. Informed consent is the good way of getting HRT. That is, you sign some papers and say like, I I give my consent to do this. I understand. Yep. And so I really thought that when I went into HRT, I was going to have to like talk to a doctor, go to multiple different visits, go to a therapist, get like a therapist to sign off. And then I went to the doctor and they were just like, no, this is, this is Boston. We'll just give you, we'll just give you the titty skittles. It'll be fine. It'll be grand. And like kind of moving towards the point that we're making here. When I was told that, when I was told it was going to be that easy, I freaked out and I waited four months before I went back and got hormones. Mm-hmm. And you went to a therapist. Although, did you do that because your dad made you? I mean, I kind of went to a therapist because my dad made me, okay. but I, my dad wanted me to talk to someone. Mm. And my dad, I think, more wanted me to talk to a medical doctor in the sense that he wanted somebody to... Um, possibly kind of scare me out of the idea of hormones um i love my dad he's a great guy we had some gender uh parents can be very very well intentioned and still not very helpful right but so i went to a therapist that specialized in gender affirming care and in specifically trans women and i got a lot of use out of that not because everybody who wants HRT or gender affirming care needs to get like a little check mark in a box from a therapist, but because I had come out relatively recently and I was still trying to understand my own gender identity and what I wanted out of it. Yeah. No, I think that that's the thing is like something that I see and I worry about, I see in myself. And again, I see again, very specifically in the young members of our community is that so much of what they want from the medical community whatever that is in terms of their tra- their medical transition is actually focused on wanting to be validated and getting it. Does that make sense? And I have this worry about myself with top surgery. I check in with myself about this all the time. So I'll, I'll use that example. I'm like, do I want to get top surgery because by getting top surgery, I'm validating myself and being non-cis and being genderqueer? Or do I want to get top surgery because I want to have a different chest than I currently have? Mm-hmm. And now for me, the answer is both. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that There's this like, especially around hormones and puberty blockers, there's this energy that if you have them, you are valid. You did it. You are trans. You're Mm -hmm. doing the trans thing. You're doing the medical transition. You've got it. A plus. And so the mindset of, again, specifically a young trans person becomes, I have to acquire those pills or those shots if it's testosterone. I don't know what... I don't know what medium puberty blockers come in, honestly. Honestly, me either. But I have to get that medical intervention because that's what's going to make me valid. That's what's going to make Mm -hmm. me a boy, a girl, or non-binary. Because I have to prove it. Because everybody is asking me constantly, are you sure about this? You know this will affect your whole life. Uh, Maybe you're thinking it. Yes. And you have to be like, yes, I know it's affecting my whole life. I take pills every morning that affect me. And like, what if instead more people had an experience more like Josie where it's like, okay, yeah, you can take them whenever you want. And then you get to be like, oh shit, like, do I want them? Like, Mm -hmm. I guess I'm already, because I think the big part that you didn't quite name, but like what I hear in your story is you walked into that doctor being like, I'm going to prove to you that I am a valid trans woman. And the person was like, yeah, you already are. Here's your pills. You want them? And you were like, whoa, okay, I guess I'm a valid trans woman. Do I want pills as a valid trans woman or not? Right, exactly. (laughs) And, and so I think that I think, based on a lot of what you've told me, based on what I've seen in our community, based on my own experience, we do it. We do a, such a disservice, especially to the younger people in our community, by 
Can I just do a plug about ahead. young people? I think that I want to name also that it's not because young people are impulsive or stupider. I think it's because young people have inherently more issues with people telling them what they can and cannot do. Because especially young people between the ages of 14 and 18 are fucking tired of people telling them what they can, can and cannot do. Right. Because they are often mentally at a place where they could run more of their lives and are in a physical space where they are being treated like a six-year-old. And so they are more likely to get... Um, more angry at people telling them what they can and cannot do. Right. Whereas adults are a little bit more like, okay, I have to hop through all these hoops. Like, I guess I'll just figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't bring up all the emotions of mm-hmm. autonomy. Right. Your main fight between 14 and 18 is your own autonomy. And so if there's this added layer of not having autonomy, brings up a lot of emotions. Right. I just want to name that we're not like coming for young trans people. <laughs> right, right. I mean, there, there are intersections as to yes. their experience. Right. But I think that we do a disservice to young trans people who are like literal minors and then also young queer people who are like young adults in right. the sense of like 18 to 30 honestly mm-hmm. which where, we fall into just to be clear into, which we, we, we're, we we're 25 and 26 yeah <laughs> and like there's this immense pressure because it is so hard to get mm-hmm. your whole existence while you're trying to get them has to be focused on just acquiring it and just proving that you deserve it proving that proving you need that it. you deserve it proving you're valid enough to deserve it right and because you spend so much time and energy proving that you deserve it that you need it that it is necessary to you and your well-being you don't actually have the space to stop and think is it do i want this do i want this yeah like that was why it was so powerful with my hormone decision of like i was able to have that space and be like do i want this will it do what i want it to do for my body will it do things that i don't want it to do to my right, body?" right and you get to actually think through what are the effects of it what do i want mm-hmm. i wonder actually because you for a while were thinking about going on tea mm-hmm. so do you have any insights then as to like when you gave yourself space to think yes or no on tea because i know one thing you did a lot of while you were on that was you kept a journal where every day you kept track of whether or not you super duper wanted it or yeah. you thought about it. I had a lot of fears of it being a menstrual cycle thing. Right. I have a lot of fears of that in general. My emotions do change in a pretty cyclic monthly thing with my menstrual cycle. So I like to track things for at least a month before I make major decisions. Valid. <laughs> and yeah, I think that, I think it's interesting. We don't think about this a lot because mine had the overlay of like the pandemic being an issue. But I also, I have access to informed consent testosterone if i wanted it and low dose testosterone if i wanted it right because we are still in proximity to chicago and chicago has an institute called the howard brown institute which is another like cutting edge um trans health place right <laughs> and i did call them and i was like so what would this look like because i thought i'd have to go to chicago and this was last the end of last summer where the pandemic was real scary mm-hmm. i mean the pandemic is still real scary but it was extra extra scary yeah and they were literally like no we could do it via telehealth and send the prescription to a Walgreens near you and then I never called them back like that was literally it and I think it I we don't think about it a lot and I haven't thought about it a lot until just now but I think that's basically the same thing I had I had the same experience as you did where I was like mm-hmm. oh I want that I need the hormones to be like valid and whatever and then I was immediately offered them and I took time to think about it and then that's where my experience diverged from yours because I was like ah do I do I really want and I think that's one more crack in the whole do I want top surgery wall that mm-hmm. crumbled down a few months later right because it gave you this, the space to be like, okay, so 
testosterone does a lot of really positive and a lot of negative things. I mean, so does estrogen. Right. Changing the hormones that your body is utilizing changes things about your body right. in both good and bad ways. And so you're able to weigh the pros and cons of that right. without having to then have the additional like, but if I even think for a second that I don't want this, does that invalidate me from getting it? Right. And I think, so I also want to add some historic context. <laughs> That's becoming my role. <laughs> <laughs> but something that I think is really interesting. I just read a book that I, to- I very much suggest called Transgender History, Very on the Nose by Susan Stryker. We will also link it in the show notes. And something that she talked about and was also talked about in The Gay Revolution, which is a more overarching history of queer identity and the queer fight for rights is how much in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s, the big thing for transgender people was bottom surgery. Mm -hmm. That was it. Like that was what you spent all of your money on. No, it doesn't even mention in this book top surgery, which I always thought was interesting. I'm like, did people get top surgery? We just aren't mentioning it. Did people not? Like were there lots of people with dicks and tits walking around? That's fascinating to my (laughs) non-binary (laughs) self. Like, so bottom surgery was like the definition of gender. That's why it was called the sex change operation Mm -hmm. because sex and gender weren't quite as like linguistically separated. And so that's how you would get IDs that matched your correct gender is you had to have bottom surgery. Mm -hmm. And Susan Stryker specifically mentioned that it was like a throwaway comment, but it really stuck with me. More recently, bottom surgeries have dropped off And facial feminization surgeries have fucking skyrocketed Mm -hmm. in this interesting way because it could be, that could be indicative of we are now judging gender more based on the face rather than genitalia. And I think, so that's historic context. That's what Susan Stryker added. But how I would pull that into this conversation is I think we had a successful campaign somewhere along the way where we were like, people who care that much about genitalia are the real perverts. You know, like anybody who's looking at other people's genitalia in a bathroom, those are the people with the real problem. And also we had a successful movement to separate genitalia from gender because now, I don't know, I personally in my circles see all sorts of positive media all the time about like, you know, penises don't make men, vaginas don't make women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And so we lessened the pressure to get bottom surgery to be valid in your correct gender. And lo and behold, less people wanted bottom surgery. Not no people, and that's important. Some people still have intrinsic bottom dysphoria, and that's so valid, and they should have access to bottom surgery. But when you detach validity in your gender from a certain surgery... People are able to think about whether they not actually want that surgery or whether they want to be seen as valid. Right. And so then the facial feminization surgery ends up being like more important in just in the sense of giving you that social euphoria, the social like yep. blending. And she said facial feminization surgery. And so now I'm going to move away from what Susan Stryker said and say that my thought as a not academic who has not looked at the data, but just my ideas, if you're interested, <laughs> is that actually... I would say it's not facial feminization that I would look at. I'd look at the rise in hormone usage right. because hormones change your facial structure. No, mm. sorry, they don't. They don't change your facial they structure. Don't face the, they, they don't face the But they change, change the, your facial shape. They don't change the bone structure, but they change the um, fat, fat distribution, distribution mm-hmm. which I love my chubby little cheeks now. Right. But so, like, like, I think that that's a huge part of it is we're judging people based on their fat distribution, specifically on their faces, but also on their waist and on their chest, I would argue, mm-hmm. more so than their genitals. 
And that is causing now in order to be valid, you need to access hormones. And so are we driving people towards hormones in a way that previously we were driving people towards sex change operations? Right. And then in spaces where, for example, you can get the idea of uh, gender is untethered from the idea of genitals Mm -hmm. and it's really easy to get hormones, then you can end up with a non-up bitch who took six months to get on hormones like Josie. Right. And like currently has a beard. And like... Or me, who doesn't have any plans of taking testosterone in general, but still wants stop surgery and still wants to be valid in my non-cis identity. Right. And these are places that we can arrive at thoughtfully. Right. These are conclusions that we can draw by taking in all of the information around us. Because, I mean, like, people are smart. They can understand their own needs. Right. If you take a moment to just, like, think, like, okay, so... What do I want to get out of this medical intervention? What could this medical intervention not do for me? Right. And then, you know, weigh those pros and cons and say like, you know what? Okay, I have all the information and now I want to go forward with it. I eat literally informed consent. That was a description of informed consent. That is exactly what informed consent is. (laughs) And I think that also I want to name too, like, we live a very privileged life. We've lived in major cities the entire time that we've been talking about. Major trans-friendly blue United States cities yeah blue meaning liberal leaning for any non-us <laughs> listeners and there are places in this country that like that's not the case that right. you can't go around being like yeah i have a beard but i'm still a woman and if you misgender me it's still your fucking problem right <laughs> like that does not exist in large swaths of not only our country but the world yeah and i would i just want to point out also like wanting hormones or surgery access because you want to be valid is also still valid. Like you don't have to be like, you don't, it doesn't have to be intrinsic. If you think that in your circumstances, the only way you're going to be considered um, consistently gendered correctly and consistently seen the way you want to be seen is if you have no titties and are on the highest dose of tea that is healthy for you. Yes. Like 100%. We need to change society. It's not on you to make that change. I just want to name that as well. Like it's not trans people who are pushed into these medical transitions to to validate their genders that might otherwise intrinsically be non-op or more non-binary are not failing. Right, right. (laughs) They're not, they're not failing. They are being failed by Mm -hmm. the system. Um, I just want to name that too. Cause like, I think that I do sometimes have this energy of like, if we could just fix society trans people would all be inherently at least gender non-conforming. I stand by that. I think it's true. I do think it's true, but I don't, I don't say it to invalidate people who want to be perfectly gender confirming and binary trans. Yeah. Because there are lots of circumstances that make that true. Yeah. And I, and one more thing that I also kind of want to tack on to the end of this episode, Mm. in a lot of anti-queer sentiments throughout the ages, there's almost always a like, but what about the children argument? (laughs) Yeah, it's gross. And the one that comes up a lot in this exact discussion is around things like puberty blockers, HRT, permanent surgeries. I mean, I think it was, is it Alabama that just passed that law? They didn't pass it. I don't, I don't think it's been passed, but they proposed it. They proposed that one law. Which I did. I My therapist put out something very interesting, which is like, if you follow all of the proposed Republicans anti-trans laws, you're just going to drive yourself wild because they throw things at the wall to see if they stick. And usually they don't stick. So I don't think it's been passed. That's fair. But it is still terrifying. That's a fair point. Go on. <laughs> um, there's this idea that if you make it easy for especially young, possibly like even minor people to get these medical interventions, then they're going to just 
fly into them on a whim and then, you know, quote unquote, ruin their lives or like ruin their bodies or like do something to permanently harm themselves. Though the response to that should be to study puberty blockers and their effects. But are we doing that? No. Right. <sighs> but I think, and this is, you know, based on the, the anecdotal experience of somebody who was in my early 20s when I went on hormones, not as, as a teenager and not having studied any statistics. So like, you know, big disclaimers. This is all very anecdotal. <laughs> big asterisks. Big asterisks. But I think that there is a possibility that if we allowed people this access more easily, it would give them, like, rather than having a bunch of, you know, kids tumbling down into gender care that changes the you know trajectory of their development forever, it would give them the space to stop and think and be like, what do I want? Because, like, right. there's a lot of terrifying decisions that you have to make between the ages of 15 and 18. We think we kids can decide their college and their future careers, but they can't decide their gender. I'm confused. Right, exactly. And, like, taking away that, like, inherent be-out-the-clock pressure by both opening up access and also decoupling the validity from the need to get these things could give people the space to be like, hey, you know what? Maybe the thought of determining this for the rest of my life in this exact moment right now when I am 16 and a half is a little bit too much for me and I'd like to take a moment to think about it. And also, like, there's just... I think people don't think about the damage that is done, even if you're right. So even if you have a kid who is, like, you somehow just know. You can see the future and you know this kid isn't actually genderqueer. This kid is cis. You are their parent, but they are super duper cis. You just somehow know that shit. And they want puberty blockers. People underestimate the damage that is done as a parent when you don't trust your child. Mm -hmm. When your child says, I think I need this for myself based on internal feelings that you cannot possibly know. And you as a parent say, no, I don't think so. I think you're wrong. That's traumatic. And I mean, I don't use traumatic. I feel like I throw the word traumatic around a lot, but it's just because I think about trauma a lot. Mm -hmm. Um that's traumatic. That is you being admitting the deep feelings that you have in your heart and soul and have probably thought a lot about. And somebody saying, nope, I don't believe them. I think that you are lying. And that is just minimizing of your feelings. And it's taking away your bodily autonomy. You yeah. say, I want to do this with your body. And your parents say, no. Yeah. But like, what would do you think your parents would say if you said, I don't want to have sex to your boyfriend and your boyfriend said, no, fuck you, we're having sex. What do you think your parents would say to that? And yet they turn around and take your bodily autonomy away in this other way. Right. And it's all just, it, I mean, and again, it is all, it is not just about saying yes to every single thing your child ever says. No. It's about giving them the space to really explore and think about their desires around certain things. And it's saying I'll support you if, yeah. if I know that you've thought about it. Right. Exactly. You know? Uh, anything else you want to say about this topic? No, I think I think I think we covered it. Yeah. It's a it's a complicated it's a it's a it's a tough one, but I just think it's interesting to acknowledge this scarcity mindset and this push towards demanding that people do certain things to be valid rather than because they actually want them. Yeah, and how that can be, even though sometimes that is uh, framed as a way to protect people, it can actually just cause more harm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I think that's where we're going to wrap it up today then on Gender Journeys, the <laughs> podcast where we talk about just what the heck gender actually is in context. As always, I am one of your hosts, Josie, and I'm joined by your other host, my lovely partner, Elle. Bye. And until next time, just keep thinking about it. Music for Gender Journeys composed by Sonia Badash. 
If you want to stay up to date with Gender Journeys episodes or just want to say hi, you can follow us on Twitter at gender underscore journeys or on Tumblr at genderjourneys.tumblr.com. You can also find us online at josiewrites.com slash genderjourneys. We hope to hear from you soon.